0: hello everyone right now I know exactly where you are you're either listening to voice of Sean at 11 a.m. or so on a Saturday or Sunday on 101.9 FM or you're enjoying the show any other hour of the day on your computer smartphone or other device as a podcast how's that for mind reading you are listening to prose poetry and purpose hosted by March Twisdale, and today I'm going to be talking with a gentleman who I met this summer, had wonderful time getting to know. His name is Four Arrows, um, given name is Don Trent Jacobs, but you go by Four Arrows. So, how are you today?
1: Well, I'm doing well, March. Good to be with you.
0: Thank you for calling in. And how about you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the book?
1: Well, sure. Um, I'm a professor at Fielding Graduate University. Uh, formerly, I was dean of education at Oglala Lakota College on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. I'm an Irish, mostly man, uh, with Cherokee blood and adopted uh, from, by the Oglala Lakota. And uh, go by, uh, my, I'm proud of my Irish name, of course, uh, Don Trent Jacobs, but go by my uh, my Indian name uh, for reasons we'll be talking about. I believe it's that how we live for 99% of human history is very, very, very important.
0: Uh, let's go ahead and start a little bit since it is the beginning of the school year. And we've got all these lovely people in the world who adore their children, want the best for them, and they're sending them off to... Government schools, that's what they are, we can call them public schools, doesn't really matter, they're government-funded schools, and they are full of people who also care about your kids and want the best for them. But sometimes the curriculum can maybe get in the way. So you wrote this book, Teaching Truly, to highlight some issues and I think be a support for people who are in the role of actively teaching America's youth. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the book?
1: Well, I wrote teaching, teaching truly because right now most indigenous-oriented programs in education are rightfully about helping indigenous children themselves. Uh, you know, it's no secret that the the oppression and the historical trauma of boarding schools uh, and the poverty and the treatment of, of indigenous peoples is is horrendous. Um, and so, education uh, that that brings an awareness. To both their plight and their contribution is very, very important, and I really honor this since time memorial curriculum that, that your state has, has been implementing. Um, but education uh, is also very, you know, hegemonic to use a you know twenty-five cent word. It's it's really about putting forth mainly, in spite of all the well-intended teachers and administrators and educators, it's really about putting forth, uh, as you mentioned, the government. Perspective, which is often and usually a corporate perspective that serves a small percentage,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so I wrote the book to to really uh, underscore in a very practical way for teachers looking at one course at a time. So it's not not really a theoretical book. Um, after a, a lot of prefacing about the sensitivities and the controversies about non-Indian people teaching non-Indian students about indigenous wisdom, very controversial. And we can talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrote it really to help people uh, really get a sense of what is the hegemony or what is the, you know, the corporatism, uh, you know, an example would be say in health education, almost all the curriculum is about how to access the professional doctors and physicians. Um, if you look at uh um, at, uh, at, at, at geography, for example. It's really just about location of particular geographic areas in terms of um, space. It's not really about the inseparable relationship that people have with the natural world.
0: Let me jump in real quick. I actually think that's sort of a brilliant point. I'm sure our listeners are thinking right now, if they have older children, that when kids get older, they start learning about the more complex things like the ecosystem and whatnot. But Sometimes what matters most is what's actually being taught to the very young children, because that's when they're going to take on sort of their um, perspective of what life is about. And if you look at books that are sold to for children, you know, like all the, every parent out there with a seven-year-old has gone to the bookstore and seen these big books that are about geography. And when you, I, I found them horrible every time you would look at a a map of any continent or state or whatever, it would have like all these little pictures of corn and oil and coal and, you know, and it basically our children are being inundated at a very young age with a perspective of the world as a place to go and get resources that serve the current human system of of living. They don't have the same geography book that's just focused on the incredibly beautiful pictures that you can see of every possible different type of terrain. You know, I mean, it should be like a big beautiful picture book to flip through, not a, you know, category of here's where you get what you want, cows and wheat and whatever.
1: Well, I love what you're saying, March. I think you're, 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 you're right on in pointing out such an important thing that we've lost. uh, uh and, and we're losing it with indigenous languages because, uh, here in British Columbia, for where I'm at right now, for example, if you walk from the coast, of, uh, from the United States coast all the way up north, every time you came into a different geographic landscape, there would be a different language, because indigenous languages actually come from the sounds of the birds, the descriptions, the places where water is, and all of, all of that. Now, in English, it's a little more difficult. But we can still do what you're saying, and and those kinds of pictures would be would be really important.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and certainly, in the you know the crisis that we're having in, in terms of ec- ecological sustainability now, uh, this is what instead of looking at resources,
2: mm-hmm. we
1: should be looking at uh, the, the sacred relationships. Um, in fact, I, I, when I, I did, you know, four tours of duty, I called them one at Standing Rock, protesting against the uh, pipeline going under the river. Right. And I, 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 wrote, I wrote a lot on, uh, about saying, you know, until we all learn to, to refer instead uh, of natural resources to the things that we, that we identify, like trees and rivers and animals, right. until we can refer to them as our relatives and really mean it we're not going to pull out of this tailspin that we're in. And, and uh, you know, people sometimes laugh when I say that, but that's how we did it for most of human history.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you're speaking to the power and importance of a change of heart versus just a change of mind. Change of mind can be very fleeting, but change of heart usually is lasting.
1: Oh, beautifully said. Beautifully said. And unfortunately, you know, the, the academy, which is higher education, that trains teachers... Um, you know, is is missing this. And and in fact, you know, a lot of people don't know. uh, I I wrote wrote a book that the University of Texas published called Unlearning the Language of Conquest, Exposing Anti-Indianism in America. Mm -hmm. But there's a number of professors um, from UCLA, from University of Utah, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, top universities that say there's absolutely nothing of importance to come out of learning about our indigenous ways.
0: Why don't you go ahead and tell people what is going on with those three states and what's so important about it?
1: Well, sure. I mean, Montana started it off and uh, they actually got some really good grant money. And it's because there's so many uh, Indian people, you know, surrounding uh, Montana. And uh, but they did a good, a really good job. And a number of years went by and then Washington State. Uh, indigenous peoples uh, uh, got together and you also have a, a large number of, of, of tribes in Washington yep. and they actually were successful in their lobbying and they got the legislators uh, to agree and eventually, you know, uh, pass uh, legislation that has been implemented now for a few years. Um, it's still um, suffering from funding and from, uh, uh, you know, sometimes uh, lack of lack of interest or too much time that uh, you know other other courses require, and it, it kind of takes a back seat. Uh, I just had one of my doctoral students do her dissertation on it, and but there's a lot of good news. There's a lot of people saying that it's working, uh, it's it's helping uh, all children better understand, uh, and it's giving some sense of hope and confidence to young indi- indigenous children. You know, I say indigenous, you know, it, it's really the t- the terminology uh, is is sensitive because of po- yeah. political correctness. I mean, yeah. we call ourselves skins, Indians, the American Indian uh, movement actually prefers the term American Indian as opposed to Native American because, you know, somebody could just be from Europe and, and be a Native American kind of thing. Um the best thing is if you if if you refer to the tribe that's always best you know if you're talking about local people to, to refer to the particular tribe
2: mm-hmm. um
1: but uh, as long as it's done with respect it really doesn't matter and so even though you know uh, uh, Columbus was wrong and, and 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 that we didn't come from India all that kind of stuff um saying indian or, or indigenous or aboriginal uh, or first nations all of those terms uh, can be used as long as they are done with respect.
2: Right, right, right. But the right, sense time, right. yeah, time
1: memorial, yeah, uh, the sense time memorial early. You know, you're talking about early learning curriculum because it, it, it goes all the way through twelfth grade. But in the early one, you know, it teaches about um, uh, 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 the um, tribal, uh, you know, tribal sovereignty, which has never been taught before. You know that there's actually some First Nations. Who are uh, trying to become actually sovereign as First Nations Mm -hmm. and never have been allowed to, and it actually teaches that even in the early, early, uh, early lessons.
0: So, Uh, so what you're saying is that second and third grade. Right, right. right. So what you're saying is that there is an effort that's been legislatively successful to actually intentionally bring Indigenous culture into the K through 12 curriculum.
1: And in fact, you know, it's decolonized is sort of the word there's a new new you know approach that's called settler colonizing which is you know a little different uh, decolonizing is what is what you've been talking about because we have been colonized right I mean I remember uh, at, Nor- at Northern Arizona University I had a group of uh, Apaches uh, Navajos Hopi students who were language speakers living on the reservation had you know BIA schools which have the same curriculum as the rest of uh, the state of Arizona
2: right
1: and uh, on Columbus Day and this is this is I'll never forget this March on Columbus Day Um, I actually gave them a lesson to go look at the logbook of Christopher Columbus and uh, at certain pages where he had bragged about some horrific things that that his people had done, you Mm -hmm. know, cutting the hands off of people for not bringing enough gold, bragging about uh, raping, all these things. And when they came to class on on that Monday, on Columbus Day, uh, it, it was amazing that the indigenous students, had never read anything about Christopher Columbus besides he sailed the ocean blue in 1492, et cetera. It was the first time they had seen any, you know, and, and, and you know, everybody's celebrating Columbus Day. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, that's just, it, that's it, to me, that was that was like 12 years ago, and, and maybe it's better now, but probably not that much you know i was in oregon where we also are replicating the the washington state uh model it just passed not not the actual since time immemorial they're creating their own curriculum but um same idea mm-hmm. i actually when the southern oregon university and the state of city of ashland they passed indigenous people's day which 23 cities around the country yep have done, we've got that in seattle replace- yep you got it in Seattle. We do. Yeah. And so, so I went around to all, all the stores uh, for a day and say, hey, did you know, t-, on Columbus Day, I said, did you know today is, is, uh, is not Columbus Day? And people would look at their calendar and go, well, yeah, it is. I got it right here. Or, well, that's why I got the day You know, the day off or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, didn't you know that your, that your city passed uh, the, the Indigenous Peoples Day? Well, most people didn't know it right to begin with. But then when I told them, yeah, it was passed last uh, two weeks or two or three weeks ago, I, the majority of people in this progressive community actually, well, why was that? I mean, they just didn't understand mm-hmm. why it was important. So yeah. we got a lot. Of, we have a lot of work. Is the point? Yeah, yeah.
0: There, us. there was a statue, this big metal artwork statue, and it was sort of like um, avant-garde art, and it was down on the pier near, you know, in Seattle. And it was—I remember my kids were young, and we had gone to the aquarium. We're walking along, and I'm like, "What is that thing?" And it had this clearly the the helmet, you know, that was worn by the um, conquistador, and it otherwise it was just a, a maleish figure in a very sort of, you know, a military, aggressive sort of stance type of positioning. So we get closer to it, and um, there was red paint that had been splattered across this silver metal statue. And I'm like, what's going on with that? And a little bit further down the pier was this, was a group of native people. I'm not sure which tribe they were a part of. And there was this huge log. And there were a bunch of tar, you know, um, tents above it to protect them from weather. And they were carving this totem pole. All these traditionally trained carvers had come together and were working on this totem pole. And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at the statue, and we read the plaque, and it says Christopher Columbus. And I'm like, wow, really? And, and I, I went over, chatted with the carvers a little bit later, and they said that, you know, the red paint gets thrown on the statue, and then eventually the city comes and cleans it off, but it signifies the blood, you know, the, the, the blood and the death and the horror that was created, you know, um, by this man's um, lust for fame, money, and power. And the statue's gone now. But it's been really interesting living here and watching this gradual cultural transition as people start to wake up and shift and change and even legislatively make changes and alter holidays, right? So it is nice living in Washington State. I can only imagine what it might be like to live in a different state where, for example, why don't you share a little bit about what happened down in Arizona?
1: Well, in Arizona, of course, uh, the ban on uh, ethnic studies was, was, a, was a pretty famous amongst educators because um, uh, they passed a Senate bill that actually prevented education about different cultures, uh, especially about Hispanic and, and indigenous cultures. Um, and for four years, it was in, in, in position. It was operating. Uh, protests never stopped, of course, and it went to court. Um, And in August of 2017, it was found to be racist and and, and, uh, unconstitutional, et cetera. But um, it it shows that, you know, even though that was a very bold legislation with the ban on ethnic studies, Mm -hmm. um, if we look at our curriculum, largely textbooks are determined by two places one in california and one in texas Mm -hmm. school boards and and whatever they choose goes now uh i remember when i was teaching uh, a long time ago about seven eight years ago i used uh, a number of books to show what was there and and one that I i recalled was a mcgraw hill textbook a beautiful big bound hard bound textbook with lots of color plates and that was for california social studies for second to third graders and it had a question in it, what did the California missionaries uh, do for the Chumash Indians of California? And this book has an answer key for the teachers that you know, need to see what they're supposed to say. And the answer was that the California missionaries provided food and shelter to the Indians. Right. Now, of course, anyone that knows the true story would be appalled by that. But, you know, this goes across the board. And mm-hmm. if, if, you, if we look at this concept of hegemony, well, let's, let's go to a non-Indian one. or, you're, act- you're, you're, or you're, you're,
0: you're. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. But I think what we can do is first step back for a second and just remind ourselves this sort of makes a ton of sense because those books are being written by members of the occupying force. These books are being created by those who don't come from the people they're talking about. They overtook this land. So, of course, they're going to have their viewpoint, you know, and it's like if there's going to be something written up and put into a book and created as a curriculum that talks about Hispanic history, it should be people who are from Hispanic countries that are writing that curriculum and information rather than people from our country writing about, quote, them. Well, you know, and if
1: it was working, maybe we couldn't have this conversation, right? If it was working. But, you know, the research is very clear. When children learn about multicultural uh, neighbors, they actually become more tolerant,
2: mm-hmm.
1: less less likely to commit crimes against other people. You know, and, and, and we're not doing that well on a number of levels if we're not... If we look at what's happening in our world today with, with uh, everything from environmental to, you know, I- interpersonal crises, it, it, it comes from a, a worldview. With mm-hmm. all due respect, I try to be complementarity,
2: mm-hmm, but in,
1: in general, how, how we live for most of human history was about relationships. It was about spirituality, which means recognizing the, the, the significance of others. It was about service. It was about uh, respecting various cultures and there's different pathways. It was about vitality and, and, and freedom and respect and diversity and mm-hmm. all of these things. And, you know, when I started to say about the non-Indian example of this mm-hmm. that I often give as, a, as an example of, of educational hegemony mm-hmm. is Helen Keller.
0: Oh yeah! Now, oh yeah! Yeah if, yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you
1: you know the story. Go ahead. And, you know if we <laughs> and I and I've done. I, yeah, I've done this all over all over in Canada, the United States. You know, raise your hand if you know who Helen Keller is. And of course, everybody raises their hand in both countries. She's so famous. And I said, well, now let's talk about why she's a heroine. Keep your hand up if you know that she was blind and she overcame. And she was deaf, and she overcame her alternative abilities and, 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 and still was able to. And people would keep their hands up, and they, they're so proud. And I said, no, keep your hand up if you know that she was a member of the Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. Um, 90% of the hands go down. And, and that she was very critical of, of the pitfalls of capitalism as relates to child labor and, and you know kids going blind in sweatshops, et cetera. And then, you know, there's still maybe 30 hands out of a 300-person audience. And I'll say, well, do you know that she was a member of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, the most radical labor union? Most of the hands go down. Do you know that she filled, you know, the uh, uh, Carnegie Hall up speaking against entry into world war one for the reasons that we went into she was very anti-war pacifist Mm -hmm. um she was a woman suffragist she's you know supporting the 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 power the need for bringing women power back well so you ask the question Well, why do in 2018 do we still teach not teach any of these things about helen keller in Mm -hmm. our k-12 curriculum well the reason is the people in power, the hegemons, if you will, mm-hmm. they really don't want us to be critical of capitalism in any way, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. They don't want us to look at labor unionism as a balancing force. That's why the Koch brothers have gutted it pretty much in, in America,
2: mm-hmm. we know.
1: Uh, that They don't want people who, when someone says, hey, let's go to Iraq because they have weapons of mass destruction, uh, they don't want young people that are soldiers or marines or, or or whatever to say, wait a minute, I had a hero in school that said to question whether a war was ethical or not. Right. Right. Uh on and on and on. They don't want women to, to regain their power. So, you know, but it all starts with what we learn and who we make our heroes
0: uh mm-hmm. in,
1: in in school.
0: Right. So if that's the case that it's so important, why have we outsourced the education of our children to a government system that frankly put a certain person in the oval office a year or so ago. So when when we talk about like how humans have lived since the beginning of time and things like that, right? You know, one of the one of the brilliant things to remember is we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? We exist in the world today with everything that is here that's human made based upon the efforts of humanity for at least the past about 10,000 years for sure. We're pretty sure agriculture started back around then, which is when we really started tinkering and coming up with lots of tools and just doing things weirdly. And weirdly in a good way, I guess, maybe. But anyways, throughout all that time, people didn't send their children away to be educated by others, much less all taught exactly the same thing by some giant government system. They taught their own children. Like, we got here because of family education and community education. We taught each other.
1: Yeah, And let let me kind of challenge you a little bit on, Mm -hmm. on, on what you're saying. Yeah. You're going... You kind of stopped at ten thousand years, right? Well,
0: uh, yeah, and 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 and, and, yeah,
1: and and, but it's it's an important it's an important observation because the majority of folks, when they think of history,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: they think essentially of Western history. And so surely, you know, we know that the, that the modern form of education happened during the Industrial Revolution, right. before that, during the time of despots, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people were told only what they were allowed when the Bible came out thousands, you know, a long time ago,
2: mm-hmm. you know, then
1: they weren't allowed to read. So, you know, we've had all that. But sort of what my point is, is that uh, the people outside of, of, of agriculture, the people right. outside of... Of it that, that that they have things to teach that actually kept the world from pollution and from uh, the, the, the kinds of wars we've had over the last six to eight thousand years right. um, by having an inseparable relationship between people and the natural world, by respecting all aspects of environment, uh, by recognizing we're dependent on the earth's complex life systems mm-hmm. and and so their education was experiential it was based on survival and, res- and, and respect and so my what my goal is is to say let's start thinking about humanity and humanity in relationship mm-hmm. with the sentient, sentient others which I know is you know deeply important to you right. uh, in particular but um, if we can start thinking about that then we can look more at the nomadic hunter-gatherers. Right. Now, they, they had a certain amount of agriculture, too. And I'm not saying that we can go back. I'm saying that there are, uh, there are these these values that have been taken out of education. Now, now character education has tried to put them back in.
0: Let's dive yeah. into that with sort of a definition of what that means because I wasn't exactly sure what it meant when you first brought it up to me. But I want to just close out the, what I was trying to do When I made the comment about how important it is that we remember that we got to where we are today, good, bad or otherwise, through a system of generally human beings really investing energy and time in the education of their children, their neighbor's children, their cousins, their whatever, you know, that it was human to human education. The reason I was sort of talking about that post-agricultural culture is because so many people really worship that. They really see it as an improvement over the pre-agricultural ways that humans lived for hundreds of thousands of years uh, you know, beforehand. However, my kids and I, as I was raising them and whatnot, I spent so much time um, really looking into all of the uh, remnant tribes and groups that are on the planet. Now there's just a few down in South America that show us how humans live pre-agricultural in particular. And as you say, you're absolutely right. It's a, many of the tribes that were recorded over the past 40 to 50 years in particular, what we were able to learn was that many of them had no words in their language for rape, murder, war. These concepts didn't exist. Uh, the same was true of the Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert. So yeah, I think that we are trapped In this box, this narrative, we don't realize there are truly other ways to live. And George Monbiot, who's an amazing person, look him up, he wrote an article about six months ago, and he said, we need a new narrative. And I think that's sort of what you're speaking to. He said, if we keep going through the same cycle of the same narrative, the same idea of how we're supposed to resolve our problems, we're just going to repeat them. We need a new, different narrative. And I think we can um, look to indigenous cultures for some really great ideas on what a new narrative might look like.
1: Yeah, and you know, just to, to to underscore what you're saying, uh, Noam Chomsky uh, has written, uh, he said that the grim prognosis, and this is a direct quote, uh, the grim prognosis for life on this planet is the consequence of a few centuries of forgetting what our traditional societies knew and the surviving ones still recognize. So pretty much what you just said.
2: Yeah,
0: only he said it better. Okay, Well, I'm not so, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what character education means, what role it plays. I think a lot of parents would be like, character education, what, what do you mean? You know, they might be surprised to find out that government schools are intentionally teaching their children character because that's sort of a personal thing.
1: Well, and that is one of, that's always been one of the, the challenges to character education, uh, that education should teach the nuts and bolts of math and and reading and, and, and science, and that character should be strictly uh, from the family domain. But after looking at education holistically, with you know, holistic education being important after John Dewey. People are saying, well, no, education should mimic the the real world, which is kind of what you've been saying. It should be experiential. It should be family. Uh, integrated. It it should be related to the environment. You can't, you know, just going and learning those things without the context of relationships and spirituality and all these things Uh, aside from, you know, the separation of church and state per se. character education became a a major movement in the United States. When? Uh, When specifically
0: uh, did it start? It
1: became a major movement in the late 70s and early 80s, kind of coinciding with all of the increased acts of violence and all the kinds of things that were happening to show that uh, our children were emerging from schools with, you know, without character traits. And the importance that people would say that, you know, I would rather have my child graduate from school being caring of others than having straight A's in mathematics, that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So controversial topic that it was character education is, is today, you know, the the big, big deal. Uh, University of Missouri has uh, a endowed chair of character education So it's a pretty big deal. Um, And uh, there's a a book uh, called uh, Discourse in Character Education has looked at all the U.S. Department of Education programs throughout the the country and the state. And there's some, you know, very, very famous ones and all that. But generally, um, and a lot of them, you know, are are useful. They emphasize service learning, for example, you know, going to soup kitchens and, 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 and there's, but they're almost all like 1 hour a week at at best. Right. Um and many of them are very uh conservative oriented, not that that's bad, but that they are much more ab- about uh sort of pick yourself up from your by your bootstraps, which you know uh, uh William Bennett, the Secretary of Education of the United States, that was his mantra, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we have going on now in the United States.
0: Basically, shaming you yeah, if you need the, help yeah and so so the, and then the other half
1: of the character education programs really just come right from sort of Christian values, and again, and not being disparaging of Christianity mm-hmm. um, we you know the the exclusive doctrines of many you know evangelical folks um when those are put into a, you know, a, a school setting and during character education, that sort of violates the, the, the church versus state uh, issues. Right. But also um, it has a certain ring to it that is not of the land. It's not of the, you know, I mean, we got to remember boarding schools and historical trauma. It was, it was, it was our Christian missionaries that were responsible for, you know, one of the, for the genocide, according to the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Report that came out in
2: 2015.
1: Right. So, you know, we've got to be careful with that. So my daughter and I, you know, we wrote a book all about a, a, an indigenous approach, which is simply, just says, you know, we've got to weave the values of generosity, patience, fortitude, humility, you know, courage, these basic ones that everyone agrees on as being important. How do you weave those into learning mathematics? How do you weave those into learning geography? How do you weave those in? And that's what I try to do and teaching well, truly uh, with each topic.
0: We have to look at the context so we can have the best curriculum in the world and the greatest teacher and the prettiest new school and the nicest school buses and the best organic food and yet... If the school system is still a coercive environment and that child has no real choice because there's the threat hanging over them every day, that if they don't do what the small number of people in power have told them they need to do, then either quote, their future will be ruined or they'll be sent to the principal's office or, you know, this or that. And I think that we forget the tenor of coercion because many of us as adults haven't been in that position since we were all so incredibly happy that we finally graduated high school and we're free. We have this brief glimmer of a memory of what that felt like, but I, maybe we sort of don't want to remember what it felt like before that because it's such a painful memory. My son, who just got his um, high school diploma by choice. So, We always said, if you want a diploma, get one. If you don't, that's fine. You don't really need one. There's a million ways to learn, and really, high school diplomas are just, everyone pretty much has them, so they don't really make much of a difference. If you're a homeschooler going into college, they could care less that you wrote down you have a high school diploma. It's irrelevant to getting into college.
1: I mean, you're really speaking to what indigenizing the curriculum is all about. In in indigenous cultures, uh, uh, the, the concept of hierarchy was, was, was virtually absent. Where you did have it, like in the Pacific Islands, it was called reverse dominance. Mm-hmm. So coercion was completely out of the equation. The highest expression of authority in indigenous cultures is on honest reflection on personally lived experience under the umbrella of recognizing that everything is connected. Uh, Indigenous uh, cultures were incredibly autonomous. It's just that what they did with their choices and their autonomy were considered the greater good. Uh, You know, like for example, I strongly advocate against letter grading, which is a very coercive practice. And research shows overwhelmingly that it is actually uh, destructive of creating self-autonomous, self-thinking, creative people. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? So we're we're totally on the same page on that.
0: Right. Well, and it was interesting that my son, in order to get his diploma, you are, quote, required... Because right, you're talking about this, this character-building concept or this character education stuff, and you want to, quote, teach people that it's a good thing to go out and volunteer in their community. So they didn't teach it's a good thing to volunteer in your community. They didn't take the children somewhere and, and have fun with them on a farm doing something great. No, they made it a requirement to graduate. Once again, forced. And I remember my son when I mentioned to him, Oh, and you've got to get your twenty hours of whatever, you know, you've got to do this, or they will withhold the diploma that you've spent all these years taking all these classes for. And he has looked at me, I said, Yeah, I know. It just completely deflates any interest you have in doing anything, doesn't it? And he goes, Yes, it's just that's so obnoxious. I'm like, right? I said, Just just find something you'd want to do for fun anyways, you know, because you have to. And Yet. Well,
1: the research the research supports you. The research shows that mandatory service learning mm-hmm. uh, it results in, in the students coming back and saying, wow, I'm glad that wasn't me. I'm glad I don't live that way. I don't ever want to see that again you know that kind of stuff. So it actually back mm-hmm. it actually backfires. The same thing is happening today with diversity and inclusion programs not only in business and industry which are popping up all over the place with chief diversity officers but in higher education. What we're finding is is that trying to mandate a respect for inclusion is backfires. And so you're, 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 this is another reason why we want to look at how we live for 99% of human history. When we, we looked at teachers as advisors, it was really about experiential education
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the relational ideas, right? And sure, without having to go back into, you know, into the, caves, which people right. always say to me.
0: Right. One of the things that oftentimes comes to mind for me is that I feel very sad at how the dominant culture looks at children. I don't think people realize how they come across. But in general, what I see is that children are looked at as almost from a a glass half empty rather than a glass half full type of perspective. And the the messaging is essentially there's a bunch of people out there and they're all going to go out, quote to get careers and get jobs. And essentially, it's career warfare. And if you are good enough, smart enough, dedicated enough, whatever, you'll end up being one of the winners, which means that you won't suffer, supposedly. But all of those other kids at the school, all of your friends are technically cast in this theater of life. As your competitors, it's just like that book about the caterpillars climbing up the tree. They never say, wouldn't that be terrible if you ended up doing all these things and had this great life, but along the way, three of your friends hit road bumps and they end up struggling. You know, I mean, like we don't, we don't really look at that. We don't recognize, I think, what we're really saying to children. Now you flip it and the children were viewed as what gift have you brought? So the adult community was like sort of watching to see what these children had been born with as gifts already. And our kids, and this might go back to the Christian background, I'm not really sure, it's almost like you're a problem or a blank slate that I need to somehow write upon, shape, and fix so you become acceptable.
1: Right. Well, what you're looking at is the good worker versus the good people motif of, of education that's always been there in the United States, pretty much. And, you know, there were we, uh, Paths of Learning, a, a wonderful uh, journal that's no longer around, they had a whole issue dedicated with the question on the front, do Americans really love their children? Question mark. And, of course, the contributing authors uh, of that theme essentially said what you, what you said, that it doesn't really show up. And the things that we learn aren't just about being good people. It's about skills that go way beyond what we can learn in a classroom. For mm-hmm. example, you mentioned the Bushmen of Kalahari. One of the things that, that uh, one of my friends, John Young, who's worked with him, has learned a, about their tracking ability, their ability to track animals,
2: mm-hmm. is
1: it's, a, it, it's, it's, what, it's what I would call a metaphysical tracking phenomenon that is sort of the origins of eco-psychology. Uh, it, they actually, this is going to kind of blow your mind, I, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine, but it's not the physical skill of looking at tracks. They can do more with tracking an animal by sitting down next to a tree and tuning in vibrationally. That's why I'm referring to it as metaphysical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, and John is, you know, has documented this. They can actually, just like they say that a lion can, as soon as you look at its trail, they feel it. They look up when soon as some human is tracking them, because animals already have this this Mm -hmm. vibrational sensation, right? So I'm being really extreme here with an example of Mm -hmm. how much we've lost. Uh, You know, I I think this conversation is is really relevant (laughs) in your Washington state curriculum is uh, that they teach the young young children is called the the House of Salmon uh, lesson. I can't remember all the details, but it talks about the salmon life cycles and, um, you know, all about uh, the relationship between the the Indian tribes of Washington and salmon in ways that uh, go way beyond, you
0: know, just uh, food. There's the basic concept of who curates your information. When you turn on your television and decide to listen for an hour to what a couple of people, nice makeup and their hair is all done up or something, and they got little things in their ears that are telling them what to say to you. They're getting that information from someone and they're going to spend one hour of your time telling you about, quote, the news. You live on planet Earth. There are... Billions of interesting things happening every single day. Out of all those billions of things, how is it that they curated what they thought was most important to share with you? It's the same thing with education. I mean, our kids could spend three years and probably not learn everything there is to know about the fun, humorous, interesting, exciting, scary stories that have been told to children for thousands of years in indigenous cultures. You know, I've got a wonderful CD. Um, I interviewed Roger Fernandez on the show about the stories that he tells. I mean, there's so much fun stuff we could be learning about, and yet someone curated our educational curriculum and the requirements for achieving the degree that we think is so important.
1: You're right. And, you know, indigenous storytelling is, uh, is a powerful modality that involves the listener and it's, it is context based and it's interactive and it's so amazing a, a way for learning to take place because, uh, you know, teaching is not a top down thing. You know, no matter how young the child or how wise the teacher, uh, it's an interactive, mutual learning experience. And each child comes in with their own stories. And this is the kind of thing that creates a world
2: Mm -hmm. where
1: we are allowing all kinds of administrations and see similar priorities that uh, are not for the greater good. That's where we're at right now. So
0: we have people who lived here on this continent, the northern American continent, for many, many thousands of years. Sustainably, healthfully, causing no damage, and then we have our culture, which arrived and has washed across the land and has literally brought the entire planet and all life on earth to the brink of extinction. That is what we are facing.
1: I'm trying to get more and more folks to you know start to look at what these things that we've been talking about and. Right. Uh, um, we're getting more and more allies, but like I said, it is a slippery slope. You know, the, the, the Indian people, and uh, w- you know, we are divided, uh,
2: right. uh,
1: on the one hand, we feel that non-Indians don't have the right, they've already stolen everything else from us and now they're going to steal our, our wisdom and spirituality is kind of how they look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and other Indian people, uh, like uh, White Standing Buffalo, was a good friend of mine who spoke at the Notre Dame Wisdom Conference recently,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he takes the other side of that. He goes, no, no one really owns these ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Um, we really are, are keepers of them. And people who come to us with respect and are willing to to understand the... The, the contextual protocols and, and are willing to to learn it. This is important because there's not enough of the wisdom keepers for us to have in education for us to pull out of this. We need to expand it. And then of course on the other side you've got the non-Indians who some of them go, oh I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to be you know get someone to get mad at me for doing this. I don't really know what I'm talking about. Um, and then you've got another group that says. What's the point of it? There's nothing beneficial in any any indigenous things anyway, right? Right. So we've got these four side positions. And I just hope that, uh, you know, that your listening audience, you know, can really think about this on their own and and reflect on, well, what is it we've lost? What is it that we can do? And how do we do it respectfully? And is there something that is of value, not just to help reverse the horrors that we've perpetrated on and are perpetrating on indigenous people today Mm -hmm. still? but what can we do to bring them as as allies and their wisdom back for all of our sakes mm-hmm. and uh hopefully that's that's what you know that's what we'll be able to to maybe make a small contribution to today
0: i think the people of the world get it and I, if we look at so many things from the me too movement um the black lives matters movement i think i mean that's that's a pretty stark example right there there are people who are like look you know we need to find a way to reach out and connect with those who have been raised in maybe a hate culture that taught them racism. How are we going to connect with them and draw them out and give them a new way of looking at the world? We've gotten used to the idea whether we're looking at you know men who prey upon women on the casting couch to men who treat women with respect, we're starting to identify what we what the problems are and what we would want it to be like instead. One minor
1: modification to the term culture is this, um, and, and, and it's real important, I really do what we refer to as pan-Indianism. In other words, I'm looking at the generalities of indigenous worldview versus dominant cultural worldview, which is, I think, what you're really talking about. Right. However, the real essence and a critique of my work that, that that I would give to myself but that others have shared with me is that... The real meaning of indigenous is with a small I, and that means indigenous to a particular place and knowledge and wisdom of that particular place. And so with that in mind, it's important just for me to say publicly that when we're talking about these things, we are generalizing and that each indigenous culture, each indigenous culture is very diverse. One First Nation has very different ideas from another. And the same way in dominant culture. You know, there's many cultures throughout the world. Of things are being done very differently in Japan than they are in Germany, than they are in Chicago. However, there is this umbrella that we refer to as worldview that all of these dominant cultures share. And there's an umbrella that all the indigenous cultures share. And that's what we're kind of trying to tap into. Let's not forget the local. their wisdom stems from a particular geography.
0: Yeah, no, I actually love that you brought that up. Thank you for reminding us of that. Exactly. I mean, because, you know, up in uh, Canada this summer, we did certain building techniques that were traditional for the Lakota. How do I say this? The Lakota tribe? Is that how Yeah, I'll First say
1: Nation it? Lakota tribe. Either okay. way, yeah.
0: So, you know, we had some building, you know, methods there that were traditional for the First Nation Lakota tribe. But if we were to do something down here, like those trees that were up in Canada, they don't grow here on this island. And the people who lived here, the Duwamish and whatnot, they built longhouses, which used completely different fibers and tree types and were necessarily different because... You know, bird nests are different all over the world based upon what they get to work with. So, um, yeah, thank yeah. you for reminding us of the, the value of local.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and, and and that's not just to be politically correct, because that's the truth. And,
0: yeah,
2: uh,
1: But in terms of education, place-based education would also be very, very important. It doesn't mean that we don't put our finger on, uh, on the larger worldview. The worldview is really more of the water we swim in that we don't see. Uh, there was a wonderful scholar,
2: mm-hmm. Robert
1: Redfield from the Univers- University of Chicago, and uh, he was the first social anthropologist. And he wrote, there's only two worldviews. There were three, he said. You had the Asian, you had the Western, and you had the, what he called, primitive. Uh, and But then after, before he died, he said, in, in the 1930s and 40s, he said, there's really now only two worldviews, because... Much of the Asian worldview has been subsumed under a consumer, corporate model, Mm -hmm. Western model, uh, authoritarian model, etc. And so what most scholars think of worldviews as it's a belief, it's an ideology, it's a philosophy,
2: Mm -hmm. and there's millions
1: of them. But I like the idea, and I subscribe to the idea that, that really there's only two observable, historically observable, uh, and meaningful w- worldviews, that under each worldview are religions and spiritual traditions, and beliefs and ideologies, etc. And know, what and would the you first s- problematic is is anthropocentrism. I mean, that's probably yeah. the you know the, yeah. the first starting place that that we have under the dominant worldviews in all cultures.
0: Yeah, that's a whole nother interview. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I'd that's, love to uh, go. That's a good- that's a good place to end it, right there, I would love to go down that hole, but <laughs> yeah, right, okay, all right, well i'm gonna what I'd like to do is end with um a, a quote here from page seventy six of teaching truly
1: All four directions are 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 in there we We took it in the north, that's wisdom, yep, and in the east is energy and action, you know, and uh in the south is spiritual and emotional awareness. In the West, is introspection.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to end with a quote from the book, page 76. It says, It is time for courage and ultimately fearlessness to take hold in all of us for the sake of all future generations. I ask you to join me in helping teachers to use this book's ideas in the most respectful and accurate way possible. Encourage them to teach their students how to Regain Balance in Our World by Adhering to Indigenous Knowledge Paths. There is no time to waste in implementing precepts that I believe are our only means to turn things around.
1: Well, I really appreciate you, you know, giving that quote. And, and if I may, uh, I, I, I just came to my mind, I want to just plug a book by Dr. Michael Fisher, Mm-hmm. He just did a biography of my of my work called Fearless Engagement of Four Arrows, because I think this idea of fearlessness that's in that quote is probably a really wonderful closing spot that we we really need to move courage
2: mm-hmm.
1: into fearlessness, which means once you decide to take action, start to trust the universe.
0: Right. Well, maybe we will just have to do another interview. When is Is that book um, already okay. out?
1: Yeah, it just came out last week, and I'm so sorry I forgot to mention it. But, uh, yeah, he's been interviewing me for about four years. He thought that I was the only academic that he knew that really spoke a lot about courage and fearlessness. Fearlessness is, according to Socrates, is foolishness. But in indigenous ways, it's like if you're about to jump off of a cliff, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Well, if you have to keep that courage all the time as an activist or as a change agent, it wears you down. It can burn you out. Mm-hmm. But if once you bring the courage to a commitment to action, if from that point forward, when you jump, you trust the universe, right? then the stress is gone and you see the beauty all around you.
0: Yeah. And you're operating from a place of trust rather than courage is sort of like, I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyways. Compared to fearlessness. You got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. Okie dokie. I
1: love, and I love, I love how much, by the way, I just want to say, I just, I, 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 I'm very impressed with, uh, uh, with having this dialogue with you. You really get
0: it. I don't know. Hopefully, I am getting it in the process of, right? Yeah, we all are. Exactly. We all are. There we go. All right. So, uh, folks out there, if you're just tuning in, you've been listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose brought to you by Voice of Vashon KVSH. My name is March Twisdale. My guest today is Four Arrows, who also goes by the name Don Trent Jacobs, if you're out there in Google land looking him up. But you can actually go to his website, which is Four Arrows Books. Dot com And if I get it correctly, arrows and books are both pluralized with an S at the end, right? Yeah. Okay.
1: arrowsbooks.com
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been just everything I could have hoped for. Same here. Thank you for joining us here on Prose Poaching Purpose, where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.